Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Uh, so, where was I? Oh yeah. So one aspect of the ego is devilish, which is the part of the ego that shuts us down. But, and, and maybe for somebody who isn't aware, that part, that part of the ego takes up the largest percentage, which is that the ego is only seen as defensive. And in many spiritual traditions, and I'm sure you've all heard this when you read books, that the ego is like the thing to get rid of, right? You should, you should get rid of the ego. But this makes no sense whatsoever. The ego is a very healthy thing to have. And you need an ego to function. And people who don't have an ego are institutionalized because they don't have a healthy separation between themselves and other people or their inner world and the outer world. So we need to have an ego. It's just that what happens in practice is you start to see that the ego can be many things, right? The ego can be healthy, and you also start to see where the ego shuts us down. So a part of the ego is Mara, for sure. But the whole of the ego is not Mara. The whole of the ego doesn't shut us down. And what I've been trying to do uh, this week is to try and give you a more positive understanding of the self or the ego as a creative art practice. To see your life as a creative practice. In other words, that we can have so many versions of ourself when we're not self-conscious. That we start to see that we are a novel and we can write the next chapter many different ways. And that's how we see the, the insubstantial nature of the personality. As opposed to the personality's bad, it's the ego and we should get rid of it, it doesn't exist. But instead see, well actually it exists and the more you can explore it as an art form, the more plastic, it bec- the more elastic it becomes. And it's like a sculpture that you're constantly manipulating. Even though you're not manipulating it. Right. More on that later. Does that make sense a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. So let's not get into this trap of making the ego bad. Okay. So that's a great question. And maybe we'll spend more time with that. Although, today is Tuesday. And that means it's the second last day. And it also means it's the second last talk I'm going to give. 
And then after we have a break, we're going to do some uh, partner exercises together to try and go a little bit deeper because I feel like you're getting a lot of uh, practical theory, but also we'll, we'll do some exercises to kind of, kind of ground it a little bit. So that's how I hope the afternoon goes. Plus, it's uh, starting to rain outside, and um, uh, it's just nice to be here together in a warm <laughs> space with so many beautiful faces. Have you looked around at all the beautiful faces? Maybe just turn around and just look at all the beautiful faces. It's better than a garden. So, we've been studying a text called the Dhammapada, which is the path of the Dhamma, um, which is the Pali word for Dharma. Uh, which basically, uh, in this context, means uh, practice. Which I, I've been translating practice as life. Right? The path of your life, or the path of your heart. So, if we were to summarize this whole week together, it would just be called the path of your heart. Um, and um, we're going to jump ahead, just because I really like actually finish two pages uh, to line number 157 157 if you hold yourself dear then guard guard yourself well here's another one of those sentences that's so good to memorize if you hold yourself dear then guard, guard yourself well. Now, isn't this an interesting language? Because don't we usually hear this interpretation, like the question that was asked, where, like, isn't the self something to get rid of? Like, isn't that, like, isn't the self something bad? But here the Buddha is saying, if you hold yourself dear, then guard yourself. Take really good care of yourself. And sometimes uh, this is also called uh, guarding the sense doors. So you have six senses. The eye, the nose, the tongue, the skin, the ear, and the mind. And you need to guard them. That means sometimes you need to... I have a thing on my computer, a parental control... So this is something I have to do, I'm going to admit. That I have a parental control on my computer where I actually program how many hours of the day I allow myself to go online. And so 60 minutes. And if I go over 60 minutes, it shuts the internet off on my computer. And many people that I know who are writers uh, told me that this is the tool they use uh, to help them write. Is... um, they set a certain amount of time that their computer can go online, and then the control shuts off your computer. And it doesn't have, like, a snooze button. <laughs> Ten more minutes? No, you're done. You're done for the day. Yeah. And this is really good, because sometimes um, you're on the computer, and you just get carried away with something. It's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just you get carried away with it, you know. So you need to guard your mind. Or, you know, sometimes you go out into the city and it can be really, really loud. And sometimes you need to guard your ears. 
you know. Or if uh, you're like Peter and you have an addiction to chocolate, <laughs> that, eat, that a store has actually named themselves after you, <laughs> then you need to, to guard your, your mouth. And, you know, we didn't spend a lot of time on it. We could have spent a whole day on it, but there's that one section about guarding yourself around eating that somebody who's constantly eating so much food, Mara can take over. They can get blown away so easily because they're constantly wanting pleasure. Constantly wanting pleasure. Um, I was saying to Peter and Bodo when we were out at lunch today that I've just moved to an island. And the island is surrounded by the ocean and mostly there's trees. And there's two things that are not on the island. The first thing is shopping. Right? So this is something that's really interesting to get used to because I'm a city person. And when you go out, there's not, you can't buy anything. And it's interesting that during the day, I never have my wallet with me. It's so interesting to just go through your day and not have your wallet. Not spend any money. Um, the second thing is, is that um, when I was teaching in Toronto and, you know, also had my workshop schedule, most of the time I'm around people who are telling me what a good person I am. Right? Like the workshop will end and everyone says, oh, thank you so much. And there'll be two people who hated it. And everybody says, oh, no, thank you. And uh, now where I live, I don't have anybody. I only have trees. And they don't care. <laughs> so it's interesting to see how sometimes we're in certain conditions where we're used to a certain way of knowing ourselves, whether it's other people or buying things, right? You know? And you might not think you're a cons- you know, I don't think of myself as like being a high consumer, but still, you know, you're in a certain mood and it's like, I want to get an ice cream, a vegan, um, non-dairy, genetically modified soy ice cream. Marketed to the yoga community. I think Monsanto created yoga just to sell vegan yoga students genetically modified soy. (laughs) Someone should do a PhD on this. Anyways, you need to guard yourself. (laughs) That's the point of all this. So, so I, think this is, I think this is something we should pay attention to, especially because uh, going online is so easy. Somebody told me that for every hour you're on YouTube, 6,000 hours are uploaded. I haven't discovered YouTube. Think about that. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Then um, the line goes on. The wise person stays awake nursing herself in any of the three watches of the night. So, um, in the story of the Buddha's awakening, some of you might know the story. The Buddha was a young man, a woman, and sits under a tree um, to wake up. And um, one night... um, there is what were called the three watches of the night. In the first part of the night, um, the Buddha's mind became very, very calm and very, very clear. And then in that space, he saw 
the way that things are um, born and reborn. And he said he saw himself being born and reborn one time, two times, 50 times, a hundred times, a thousand times. And one way you might interpret this is he saw his ancestry, right? He saw his genetic code, right? He saw his temperament. Or it's like, do you know when you visit a grandparent and they show you photographs or tell you stories about people in your family and you see yourself a little bit in it? Like, oh, I have that trait a little bit, you know? It's like that, right? Or um, um, sometimes I get this on retreats, you know? When I'm sitting on retreat, there's always somebody on the retreat I don't like. Has anybody had this before? It's just the way they walk or the way... And then I say, oh, that's an exaggerated version of the same thing that I do. Right? And, then, and then sometimes I think of every... This sounds a little narcissistic, but it's not. That I think of everyone in the room is actually a variation of some aspect of my personality. Right? Like that person does that. Oh, like I do that, but they do that way more extreme, you know? And it just helps soften the heart a little bit to think like this. But another way of interpreting this, if you're not into, you know, rebirth or reincarnation, is that the Buddha saw how his habits in each moment are reborn. In each moment, you can, and I'm sure you're seeing this in meditation practice, right? You start getting still. And then you see the birth of a habit. Whoa. And then you let go of the habit. And you see the death of the habit. And then, whoop, it's back again. Right? Come over and over. It's like a, a pimple. Right? Except you don't squeeze it. <laughs> so, uh, that's the first watch of the night. The second watch of the night is that he saw how everything that dies is reborn. That everything that dies is reborn. Every emotion, every sensation, every person, every animal, that everything that dies disintegrates in life and is reborn in other conditions. Okay. So for example, uh, when I think I talked about this yesterday, but when you when you if you take a body like they do in Tibet or Burma or Thailand, and you put it on the ground when it's dead in a charnel ground, and you leave it alone, the body will start to bloat and get filled, filled, filled with air. All the, the a few days later, all of the fluids will drain out of the body back into the earth again, and then maggots. Do you know what maggots are? Maggots. Yeah. They're worse than fruit flies. Because you know what happens in a human being when you leave them and they're dead? Is the maggots come from inside the body. Out. They start coming out of the mouth. Coming out of the eyes. The ears. Yeah. And when you look at a body with maggots coming out of it, it's more alive than when you're alive, <laughs> right? We say, oh, that's dead, but actually the body looks more alive than when you're alive, 
right? And so the maggots are eating their way out of the body, right? Can you pick, can you, can you taste this? Yeah. And then you see that life is giving more life, is transforming into more life. And so what the Buddha saw in the second phase of the night is that nothing really dies. So imagine letting go of your personality so deeply that you just see that everything you let go of continues on in some way. Now, I think there's been a mistake in the interpretation of this as it means that you get reborn in a particular way. That's not what's being said here. That's reincarnation. What's being said here is that everything that dies is reborn. Okay? And then the third uh, phase, and this is, when, this is what the Buddha calls his awakening, is that he woke up to what he called dependent origination. You can write that down. Dependent origination. Paticca samuppada. Dependent origination. So that's what we're going to spend the whole day on. Dependent. Dependent origination. Some translators call it dependent co-arising. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who turns 88 years old today, um, translates it as interbeing. So let me describe what this means, because this is really, really um, important. Um, a seed given the right conditions, right? The right kind of soil, uh, the right water, the right amount of sunlight, the seed grows bigger than itself. And the seed didn't come out of nowhere, the seed came out of conditions. And given certain conditions, the seed becomes something. Um, Co-arising means that nothing arises by itself. Everything that arises, co-arises. This is really important. What it means is, nothing is born by itself, except for Jesus. Nothing is born by itself. Even a sound, for a sound to be born, it depends on an ear hearing the sound. If the ear can't hear the sound, there is no sound. Because you don't know it's a sound unless the ear hears the sound. So the sound and the ear create hearing. Hearing doesn't happen without these three things. And the way it's described in philosophy is it's like three reeds all stacked up. You know like when you make a tent with canvas? You put three sticks and you need the three sticks. If you take one out, what happens? The whole thing falls. Okay? So in order to have an experience in a moment of time, you need to have three things. One, a sense organ. Two, sense consciousness. And three, a sense object. So let me give you an example. For seeing to happen, you need an eye, you need a visual form, and when the eye and the visual form come together, 
you get seeing. So this is called eye consciousness. When the nose, okay, so there's a nose and there's a chocolate store. Okay? Peter? So when the nose and the chocolate store come together, you get shopping. I mean, you get <laughs> smelling. You see? In other words, there's no such thing as smell without the nose and something to smell. Without those things, you don't have smell. You see? So nowadays, neuroscience and philosophy are obsessed with consciousness, right? But the Buddhist idea of consciousness is that consciousness is interdependent. It, it dependently arises, right? It co-arises. So what's happening in your experience is all these fireworks going off apparently 64 times a second. Okay, this is what, in the ancient text, this is what it says. Uh, akshana, which is that, snap of the finger, there's 64 moments of consciousness in it. That's how quickly this is happening. In other words, the mind and thought come together and there's thinking. But if there's no thought, there's no mind and there's no thinking. That's why the Heart Sutra says, no ear, no tongue, no nose, no body, no mind. Because if a sound does not arise, there's no ear. There's no ear. There's only an ear because there's sound. Isn't this interesting to think about? So, um, this means there's no separation. That the world and your perception of the world can't be separated. They exist as an interdependent phenomenon. You can't talk about the world. This is good science, right? The, 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 the viewer observes what... Uh, the observer influences what's observed. Right? You can't not influence what's observed. Right? Just like when I say watch your breath, you change it. You can't not change it. There isn't a world to observe objectively. All you have is your subject, subjective experience. It also means that everything that we do affects the perceptual field. So everything we do impinges on other beings. So there's an ethical component to this. It's not just about perception. Is this making sense? A little bit? You said sense organ and sense object and... Sense consciousness. consciousness. Yeah. Yes? I think it's hard to understand because if I close my eyes, I don't see anything. But my eyes are still here. Right? You're saying if, if there's no sound, the ear doesn't exist. Yeah, if there's no sound, the ear doesn't exist. The only reason why the ear exists is because you've created that out of language and you have a visual form that you call ear. But the ear is a functioning thing and has no existence without sound. Okay, so we're talking about existing, its existence. As having a function. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so there's no eye that sees if there's no object. 
There's no, when you're sitting in meditation, there are times where there's no thoughts, and then there's no mind. There's experience happening, but there's no mind. Just like yesterday, we talked about how you can sit, and there's no gender. It's not male, it's not female. right? And then in other conditions, there's male and female. And male and female are determined by the conditions, actually. Do you see what we're getting at a little bit? It's very interesting to think about things in this way. Yeah. Yeah. Complete silence. Yeah. Then my ears are speaking. Oh. Nothing. What's with it all? Complete silence. My ears are speaking. Really? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Let, let's let's try a very basic example. We won't do it, but just try, just try, imagine this as a thought experiment. If you close your eyes while you're inhaling and exhaling, then you say to yourself, there are sensations in my body. Right? There are sensations in my body. It's a popular thing in meditation practice. Your eyes are closed, you're meditating. There are sensations in your body. But if you pay closer attention, there's no body. There's your image of a body. But the sensations are not happening in your body. The sensations are happening in awareness. And with language plus an image, you're calling that your body. But if you get rid of the image of your body and you notice sensations, the sensations are being noticed with awareness. And then with language, you're adding on to it, it's my body. But they're not happening in your body. That's an idea. They're just happening in space and time. And we superimpose onto that, it's happening in this shape of a body. Because you have an image of your body. But when your eyes are closed, you don't have a body. There's no bo- they're not ha- you, your experience is not happening in a body. <laughs> but when you have to communicate that, you have to use words and images, and you say, this is happening in my body. But your subjective experience is not that it's happening in a body. Does this make sense a little bit? Your ear, let's go back to your example, because you're still upset. (laughs) Okay. When your ear meets the sound, where does the meeting happen? Where is the listening actually happening? Can you feel it? No, it's in your awareness. What's that? In your awareness. I mean, just check that out. Isn't that interesting? Like we say, oh, the ear is hearing the sound. But if you really meditate, and we could spend an hour just sitting here and doing this and exploring. And this would be the meditation technique, is I would ask you, when a sound arises, notice the location where the listening is happening. And you can't find it. I gave you the answer. The reason you can't find it is because it doesn't exist. 
It's interdependence. It's interbeing. The Buddha says, if you pick up a flower, what is the essence of the flower? Is it the color of the petals? Is it the smell? Is it the stem? Is it the person noticing the flower? What's the essence of the flower? And the truth is, there is no essence of the flower. The whole experience is an interdependent arising. Do you see what's meant by dependent arising? And this is what the Buddha's awakening was, is he thought that everything was dependently arising, which means that, and here's the punchline, there is no thing inside of anything. There is no thingness. This is called ontology. What that means is, if you look at anything, it has no essence. Because it's an interdependent phenomenon and doesn't actually exist as a thing. The only way something exists as a thing is with language. The only reason why this is a wall is because there's a floor. That can't be a ceiling without the wall. You see? And then the deep insight has two sides. One is personal, which is that we don't exist. as a thing, that all we are is karma, actions and the effects of actions. But our imagination is superimposing onto that a novel of me. And in the middle of the night, this is what the Buddha saw. And it completely changed his experience. This is what the Buddha saw. And this is the opposite of Mara. But every once in a while, Mara came back, shut him down, and made him feel like a me again. And we've all had this experience many times in our life. Where you've experienced yourself as not being a self, but actually being part of an interdependent reality, where everything drenches you and everything is affected by you. Yes? Uh, wait, you had your hand up first. Uh, I was just asking you, it's a little bit like the movie The Matrix. Uh, what you explain, isn't it? Can you compare to that? Maybe. I don't know. I don't like Keanu Reeves, so no. I, didn't, I couldn't get through The Matrix. <laughs> oh, did I just say that? <laughs> yeah, it's like a Matrix. Okay, before we get there, before we get there, we're never going to get through this. What, what, remember I said there was two aspects to the Buddha's awakening, right? So one aspect is personal, is noticing that then in me there's no thing. The other aspect is this becomes a radical critique of religion. 
because every religion in India at that time, including the Abrahamic religions of our time, Islam, Christianity, Judaism, the core of the religion is making contact with what's eternal, with what doesn't change, and with the soul. And you can only have reincarnation if you have a soul. Because otherwise, what gets reincarnated? And we go around feeling like we have something in us that's really me, some seed, some essence. And the Buddha is saying, if you look really carefully, the whole idea of essence is just a story that you're superimposing on this moment-to-moment experience. It's just a narrative. Okay? So then, every tradition that has had this insight has been followed by an attack, a counterattack from inside the very religion to try and close that insight down. And the same thing happened after the Buddha's death is that the teachings later get reinterpreted to include other ideas that the Buddha didn't teach to make it seem like inside of us there's a core of something. Um, In Mahayana, they call it uh, Buddha nature. In Zen, it's called original mind. In uh, the Yoga Sutra, they called it Purusha. This idea that there's a thing that exists in space and time that's beyond all of this, which actually goes against the teaching of dependent origination. You see? And this is how the Buddha critiqued religion. He's not saying there's no soul. He's not saying God doesn't exist. He's just saying that in the core of what you think is the core, no matter how far you look, it's just interdependence, interdependence, water and butterflies. All the way down butterflies. So is it fear of dying that has made people superimpose superimpose what do you what do you say is spiritual? I would suggest I mean I would think that. Not fear of dying, but the fear of realizing right now that you don't exist as a thing that you actually exist interdependently is the scariest thing that we can realize about our lives because it means that the whole project of me doesn't really have a solid base And when you realize that the whole project of me is just a project, then the response is to find a way to ground yourself existentially. And the only way to do that is with romantic love or capitalism. Because romantic love gives us the idea that another person is going to ground us and give us meaning. And capitalism, which is another version of romantic love, gives us the idea that with enough capital, we'll feel grounded. But the truth is, you can't ground yourself because you don't exist as a thing that can be grounded. That all you can do is open up 
to the reality of your interdependence, that you are everything in order to be grounded. And what I want to argue this afternoon is that this idea is so challenging, this insight is so challenging to who we think we are, and it has been throughout human history, that whenever we have a text that has this teaching in, we've added on to it an idea about God in order to avoid the core teaching of the text. And that's been the main problem with texts like the Yoga Sutra, for example, where this teaching has been covered over with ideas of Brahman and the Atman that are not original to the text. More on that later. Yes? What about the objects? For example, if all the discovered planet truth say it doesn't exist before. No, it's that you could say the moon exists, or Pluto exists, or Mars exists, or Heidi exists, or Bodil exists, but they only exist as experiences that are dependently arising and in constant motion. The history is also dependent on different conditions coming together to give rise to it. Every moment, conditions arise that create things. But what do you do with that knowledge? I mean, would, would, how do you put that You together? build your life on this knowledge. You stop clinging to things thinking that they're me and mine. And I'm going to end today with a story about this. Yeah, so, so what the Buddha is suggesting here is don't answer that question. Use that question to look more closely. Right now, who is listening to this talk? And you have a feeling that, oh, it's me. But go deeper than that. What is the experience of that? Moment by moment by moment. Why do you have to congeal into a me that's having this? You see? Exactly. Because we can't see. And this is called avidya. And this is why we suffer. Because we don't want to see. Because we're scared that we don't exist. And at a superficial level, it happens when you lose your job. You lose your job and suddenly you're not a lawyer anymore. Who am I? I'm not a lawyer. You move to an island and you're not a teacher anymore. This is was, this was my experience. Who am I? I'm not a teacher anymore. The rocks don't see me as a teacher. Yeah, so, so the healthy response to this is freedom. Being free of the self-consciousness of a me. And the more you practice, the deeper... And, and this is really important to understand, that this was what the Buddha saw. 
You know how everyone says, oh, the Buddha was enlightened, and you have some weird ideas about that. But if you ask the question, well, what was he enlightened about? <laughs> like, what did he wake up to? You don't just wake up. What did he wake up to? What he woke up to was dependent arising. That everything is constantly arising dependent on conditions. There's nothing in the center of it. There isn't something making the whole thing happen. It's happening. But why do you want to practice if there's no me? What's that? So why do you want to practice if there's no me? What is the no, there is, it, no nobody me. said there's no me. I never said there's no me. No. <laughs> Didn't say that. I said not me. It's not the same thing. If I say no me, then you're going to say, oh, well, there's no me. You know. But what it is, is whatever you think is you, is not you. It's not the same as saying there's no you, because that would be wrong. Okay? So psychologically, epistemologically, there is a self. But ontologically, there is not a self. Epistemologically means you can know that there's a self. But that there isn't actually a thing there that is self. Does it also mean that the self that we believe in is much more than we can imagine? You can't get your mind around it. You're, you're 75% water. <laughs> so we are more like a phenomenon? So because we can fit it, we can experience it. Yeah, so you experience yourself as a self. But as you start to practice and look closer and closer and closer, you will see that you don't actually exist in the way you think you exist. And that's why there's always a phase in meditation practice where people freak out. And usually after that is a period of great relief, great peace in someone's heart. So what you're saying is that when I watch my breathing and ask these questions, what is breathing? Mm-hmm. When the Buddha says that, you stop that. Don't go further. Because there is no further than mm. asking the question. Yeah. Do you... And then my second thing is, I also think you're saying there's a lot of freedom in it. Mm. But there's also a lot of responsibility. Yeah, because a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's what people were talking about yesterday and the day before when they were talking about the precepts. Is this like deeper and deeper realization that there is nothing that you do that's independent of everything else. And in this time of extravagant consumption. This is really important. In this time of the digital internet trance, this is really important. In this time of having teenagers and young people in your house, this is really important to talk about. That everything you do impinges on everything else. My mother always said that thoughts, Mm. they pass through customs without being taxed. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, why, why are the northern, why are countries in the northern hemisphere so adamant about burning fossil fuels and continuing on with a gross national product based on extraction? And why are countries closer to the equator so focused on what's called climate debt is saying to countries in the north, we're the ones paying for your, your level of industrialization because we can't see the pollution and they see the pollution. And as long as we keep pretending there's no pollution because it's invisible, we don't have to see the karma. We don't have to see our, our interdependence. Germany, this is a tangent, but Germany, after Fukushima, went off nuclear power and has invested more money in renewable energy and created more jobs than any country in the world. And their carbon footprint has uh, increased something like 30% in the last five years. The amount of carbon that they're producing... uh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, um, why is that? Is that because even though they're doing all this, they still have all this coal, and they're just shipping it to other places, selling the electricity to other countries. Or if you're in Denmark and you think you know you guys aren't burning so much fossil fuel, every time that you order something online, and it comes from China. Denmark doesn't include in their national statistics the carbon footprint of a person in Denmark buying something from China and bringing it over here. That gets put in China's carbon accounting, not in Denmark's carbon accounting. Do you understand? So, in other words, the more you don't have to see the pollution, the more you don't have to do anything about it because it's invisible. But it's not true. And the same is true with our thoughts. You think that you're sitting in here and nobody can see what's in your mind. And it doesn't have any effect. I think we should create an app where you have a headband like this. And you put your phone in it. And it shows you on a screen everything you're thinking. So that everybody else can see what you're thinking. We're going to work. Martin and I are going to do this in Sweden. And, and it shows you everything you're thinking. And then, imagine this. And everybody would start having a practice. <laughs> right? Everybody would then start a meditation practice to really work with their mind. Now let's bring this to an emotional level, which is when you're numbing yourself out on TV or with drugs or whatever your drug is. Everybody has a different drug. When you numb out your negative emotions, you also end up numbing your positive emotions. Because numbing is numbing. And if you can't feel your negative emotions, you're probably doing the same thing to the other end of the spectrum. So what dependent arising teaches us is that when anger arises, it only arises in certain conditions. 
And if the conditions are not there, the anger doesn't arise. Schizophrenia only arises in certain conditions. And if the conditions are not there, schizophrenia is not there. In other words, nobody is always angry and nobody is always schizophrenic. You're only angry when certain conditions arise. And you're only schizophrenic when certain conditions arise. And now we're learning all kinds of things about schizophrenia. Like people who have uh, intense schizophrenia breathe backwards. When they inhale, their belly goes in. And when they exhale, their belly goes out. We're also learning that they have a lot of inflammation in their gut. So we were talking at lunch how, you know, some of the work that people are doing now with schizophrenia is they're giving flora and uh, transplants to the stomach and intestines to get new bacteria in there to reduce inflammation in the brain, right? Because a lot of inflammation that happens in the gut is is neurological in its uh, reaction. So the point of all this, without to get too far into it, the point is everything that arises, arises in certain conditions. Okay? And this is how the Buddha sums it up. He says, this is my favorite line. If you want to remember one line or get a tattoo or something. This is so simple, but it's so helpful. When this is, that is. Oh, it's not on the page. Sorry. I'm reading it off my page. <laughs> When this is, that is. From the arising of this comes that. When this isn't, that isn't. From the cessation of this, there's a cessation of that. Sounds so simple, doesn't it? It's really beautiful. When certain conditions arise, an emotion arises. So let's say irritability. Right? If you take some of the conditions away, there's no irritability. So if you combine missing a meal, right, too many emails, no exercise, and a bad night of sleep, what are you going to get? <laughs> Me today. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? And if you combine community good food, a safe space, breathing, right? And a practice. What do you get? You get, you get a kind of uplifted joy. Dependent on the conditions. In other words, instead of saying, I am, we should say, I inter am. Because we inter exist. We inter exist. And it's not philosophical like everything's connected, man. What I am depends on what. It depends on conditions. Yeah. Yeah. Like if you go to Christiania, you can smoke a joint 
and then be like, whoa, man, everything's interconnected. It's so good. <laughs> right? Sort of, not really. Mostly if you smoke a joint, you get neurotic. <laughs> but anyways, um, but what's being said here is that in every moment of experience, it's not just that you're noticing interdependence. It's that what you are is interdependent. It's an experience that includes your experience of yourself. Then this gets to the last question, which is, um, then what's awareness? So in some traditions, um, there is a vocabulary where they make a distinction between consciousness and awareness. Where awareness is what's watching consciousness. Consciousness is always changing, but behind it there's this awareness that's unchanging. And I think sometimes, for some people, that's a really good way of thinking about meditation practice. To notice that the, the one who's noticing the noticing seems to be unchanging. It's like that. But I would say that's just a phase. And actually, if you start to notice that, then there's no noticing the noticing. Then you're just yourself. And that's why translators translate the word purusha as awareness. To make it seem like there's this thing that's unchanging. But the word purusha actually means a person. So that's why I always say the goal of yoga is to become a person. In other words, to be yourself. When you're fully yourself, you don't need to posit that there's some special thing inside or outside. There's just being in your life. Like when you are creative. When you're creative, you don't think, oh, there's like an inner soul right now that's creating. You're just creating. Do you all know what I'm talking about? You're just in it. You're an actor, you know? When you're performing... There's probably a whole phase, you're so nervous, I hope everybody likes me, like, did I get all my lines, right? All this. And then there's a moment on stage, and all of that is a complete, uh, a completely exhausting thing that's bad for your body, that you probably go through every single time you perform. And you don't do it for that. You do it because there's a moment on stage where all of that goes away, and you're completely in the character you are the character, you are a person performing in those conditions. You completely forget about yourself. It's amazing. But as soon as you look out into the audience at the one person in there, the critic, who doesn't like the performance, you lose the whole thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And if, and if you didn't have that time of losing yourself, you wouldn't keep doing it. So I have to admit something to you. Don't tell anybody. I love Lord. Do you know who she is? She's 18 years old. Lord with an E at the end. She's a singer from Australia. She's so beautiful. I really, I have a crush on Lord. Not only that, I follow her on Instagram. I mean, on uh, Twitter. Yeah. I don't follow very many people on Twitter, but I follow Lord on Twitter. This is, don't tell anybody about this. And I was watching an interview with her on the airplane. And uh, she was talking about how 
30 minutes before she goes on stage, she basically is nauseous. She's a nervous wreck. She's just a complete mess. And then as soon as she gets on stage, something happens where she's like a channeler that's channeling all this music that she doesn't take any credit for. So I think that's really beautiful. Now that's our life. Our life is like that. There's these moments of intense self-consciousness. Who am I? Will they like me? Is my body right? Like all this stuff. And then as soon as... That's Mara. And as soon as that drops, there's interdependence. The music, the audience, the sound, the members of the band, the lighting. I mean, you know, all the conditions come together and it's magic. And I would say that if somebody uh, like like Bodil... um, who spends a lot of time thinking about birth. You know? there's a, in giving birth is this experience. In dying, there's this experience. In making art, there's this experience. In being intimate with somebody, there's this experience. Just forget about yourself. So, I wanted to end with a story, and then we can have a discussion and then have a break. Does this seem okay? I also want to say that this is the area of thought in the yoga and Buddhist tradition that is the most difficult. And a sign that you're learning something is that for a second you get it, and then you're like... (laughs) And then you're like... And then... (laughs) And I, I actually think that our personality is organized not to understand this. So, after the Buddha talks, uh, do you remember I told you the story yesterday about Queen Malika and King Pasenadi? You know, how the Buddha kind of spins that if you really are dear to yourself, then you won't hurt anybody because you realize other people are also dear to themselves. So then, I want to read you what happens after that. It's a really interesting story. This is from the Vinaya. At one time, a certain monk was suffering from dysentery. Uh, I don't know, what do you call dysentery? Same thing. And lay where he had fallen down in his own shit. Can you picture this? Dysentery is so bad, you actually fell down. It's a bit of a joke, maybe, I don't know. And the Buddha was going about his rounds in the monastery with Ananda, who is his right-hand person, his best friend. And they came to the area where this monk was living and saw he had fallen in his own shit. The Buddha saw this and seeing him immediately went towards him and said, What ails you? What's wrong with you? And he looked up at the Buddha and says, I have dysentery. And the Buddha says, isn't there anybody taking care of you? And he says, no, there's no other monk taking care of me. And then he says, well, he looks around and says to Ananda, why isn't anyone taking care of him? And the monk says, because I'm useless. I'm useless to the other monks. So nobody is taking care of me. 
Then the Buddha said to Ananda, Ananda, go quickly and fetch water and we'll wash this monk. And Ananda goes and gets the water and um, they start at the head and they wash this monk's head and arms and his body and his legs and his feet. And then uh, later on, connected to this instance, when all the monks are together, the Buddha says, Is there in this monastery a monk who is sick? And someone says, There is. And he says to everyone, What's wrong with this monk? And everybody says, The monk has dysentery. And the Buddha says, Is there anyone who's taking care of him? And they say, No. And the Buddha says, Well, why isn't anyone taking care of him? And they said, they, they were just quiet. I love this part of the story because it's a little bit like, I feel like we need to ask the yoga community this sometimes. It's like, there's someone in the community who's ill. Is anyone taking care of them? Do you notice they're not coming to our practice? Has somebody called them? And um, the Buddha then has this beautiful line. He says, You are all monks. You have no mother and no father to take care of you here. If you don't take care of each other, who is going to take care of uh, who is going to take care of you? Why are you waiting for someone else to take care of you? You should take care of each other. If we have a teacher, let the teacher take care of him is what you might think for someone's recovery. But if you do this, it will be an offense. And that's his teaching. So, let me describe it again. The Buddha is basically saying, why are we all practicing, waiting around for someone to come and take care of us? If you do this, you don't understand practice. If you're listening to the teachings on impermanence, on the preciousness of your life, the teachings on dependent origination, which is a fancy word for interdependence, then your response is to take care of each other. The depth of your understanding is the depth of your ability to serve. The depth of your understanding is directly related to your willingness to serve. So there's an ill monk, and nobody's looking after him because he's not of use. And isn't this what happens in our culture? Somebody has mental illness, and they're not of use to anybody because they're not consuming anything and they're not producing anything. Is that how we're going to treat people? So maybe we should all be a little more sensitive to people who are not uh, as able as we are. There's a wonderful story that Sharon Salzberg tells of inviting His Holiness the Dalai Lama 
to the United States. And just before uh, the Dalai Lama came, she broke her leg. So she was all frustrated because he was coming for arrival and she couldn't kind of organize everything and do everything how she hoped. And it was the Dalai Lama coming for one of his first visits to the United States. So anyways, he shows up and there's thousand people, you know, hundreds of people around her in the room. And the Dalai Lama spots her with her broken leg and comes straight over to her and asks her how she's feeling. His radar in the room was to the person who was most injured. (laughs) I have so much prejudice. Do you? I don't always look for the person who's in most need. I usually look for the person who's more like me. When I walk down the street, there are certain bodies that I tend to look at more than other bodies. There are certain ages that I look at more than other ages. So that means there's so many people that I don't see because I don't want to. That's what the Buddha is saying here. The teaching of paying attention is the teaching of compassion. So the goal of every yoga pose is compassion. The goal of every meditation practice is compassion. What I think of the monks in this question who is most dear to you? So the monk going to help the monk discipline, he would still be doing it for himself. Because it increases Oh. Yeah, there's If yeah, let's not be naive. If you help someone, it improves your self-esteem. It's not the same thing as helping someone only because they're going to report on it in the local newspaper. <laughs> Yeah. I don't have to be in the other person's pockets helping me being an angel yeah. to stay home because it is in fact myself yeah. who will get the most out of this. Yeah. You know, th- there's a lot of talk nowadays about something called compassion fatigue. Have you heard about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like someone's so compassionate all the time they have a burnout. But I don't think it's true. There is something called empathic uh, distress. Empathy is when someone else is suffering and you're resonating with it. There's no you. There's just, you're affected by it all the time. That creates burnout. But compassion includes you. Empathy is just resonating with the other's experience. That's what burns us out. Empathic burnout. Empathic brownout. Empathic yeah, that's, distress. That's why you have no I. There's no you. No, no 
Yeah, but in compassion, mm. there is a me. Yeah, it's a you and me. Yeah. So I think that's a very good point. The, the, the monk has to go to the other monk to help the monk or the nun or whatever because they're not well and that's you over there who's not well. And when you help them, it helps you. Any good psychotherapist will say they are so lucky doing the work they're doing because they're doing so much work on themselves. Hmm? So... One or two more comments, and then we're going to have a break. Yes. When you do the meditation practice, yeah. it's kind of the same thing. Yeah, for sure. It is the same thing. Yeah. But if you don't really need it, that you really want the best for everyone else, yeah. you won't feel the benefit of the practice. Mm. And you just can't take these two things apart. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you have to really mean it. It takes time with the little practice because at the beginning, my experience is that it is like words, repetition, it feels a bit, it felt a bit, I don't feel it, I'm just repeating this sentence. Yeah. It takes a little while, right? Oh yeah, I mean, I'd say for the first 10 years of my practice, I thought Metta was the most ridiculous thing. <laughs> it's like, why are all these people doing all this loving kindness stuff? I would, let's just meditate. <laughs> but that's a young man's position. Yeah. I have a huge crisis about Mara and the things yeah. that Mara is only my response that you would know. Uh, Conceptualize anything external in terms of Mara, I guess. What do you mean? Corporations that do damage or, or how, like those. Yeah, Mara is anything that has the capacity to shut down. So it can, it's not only the voice in your head. Right. Alright. Yeah. Yeah. And then also in terms of like conflict, I don't know how to like pose the question, but we were reading a little bit in the time book. <laughs> yeah. And she she says this thing about like uh, there, there there was no conflict of grace before there was a resistance movement. Uh-huh. To that there was no gender conflict uh-huh. before there was a feminist movement. Right. right. And I'm just thinking there's a lot of, you know, like drive and that anger and that hostility and all that. Yeah. So, so I'm just wondering about the Buddhists and this impermanence and what is a conflict? What is a conflict to the Buddhists? What is conflict? Yeah, like what? Yeah, like, like what's the dance between good and evil? Yeah, like... It's very clear. It's very clear. So the corollary to good and evil in the Christian tradition, in the Buddhist tradition, and I would say in the yoga tradition too, is the dance between um, uh, pragna, wisdom, and avidya, ignorance. Those are the two poles. right? So we could say Buddha and Mara, 
But we could also say the dance is between the conflict in our life is between uh, not seeing how things are, avidya, and pragna, wisdom, compassion. That's it. In every moment of our experience, you said love and fear, same thing. Every moment of our experience, this is the tension. Not wanting to see and compassion. And the more we're on this side not wanting to see, the less compassion there is. And the more compassion there is, the more wisdom there is. The more seeing there is. And that's why I think, and maybe neuroscientists will tell me I'm wrong, but I believe that when people say compassion fatigue, they really mean empathy fatigue. That you can't run out of compassion. It's the only natural resource (laughs) on earth that you can't run out of. Is compassion. We'll run out of oil, we'll run out of steel, we'll run out of coal, we'll run out of water. We'll run out of chocolate, and we'll run out of chocolate. <laughs> but we will not run out of compassion. Yeah. Isn't that the truth in, like in the airplane that you should take the mask first and then help others? Yeah. yeah. But the point is, is that you take the mask and then you help others. Yeah. Some people, they take the mask... Right? And they're like, oh, I want the oxygen. And then they want, like... Someone else's mask. Oh, <laughs> that country, I want they'll, their oxygen. Fuck them, you know, and then you take their oxygen, right? And those people over there with the darker color skin, I want their oxygen, right? And this is what we do, That's right? That's case, but then the other case, people help others without any oxygen. And then the other, yeah, it's like, oh, I'm, I'm just going to help other people because, you know, I'm not valuable. That's and then the you die. Empathy fatigue. And that's the empathy fatigue. Yeah. That's the empathy fatigue. A lot of our grandmothers had this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Is um, you just supposed to give and be good to other people. Don't worry about yourself. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And then your self-esteem really gets smashed. Last question or comment, and then we're it's, we're gonna uh, have a break. It's a comment. It was just uh, from yesterday. I was so inspired that I got home and I did write a poem, and I wondered if I may share it with you mm-hmm. privately or with the whole group. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to stand up so uh, your voice projects? No. Okay. No. <laughs> oh, you're an actor, so you can you can speak loud. My dear unfaithful heart, you have fooled me again. Let me to believe what was untrue to be true. Let me to believe that I could find happiness and settle down on this ground forever. You have made me fall in love again and again, only to see that I was just falling. You have made me seek joy where Mara lives. You have made me cling to youth, pushing death away, when all along every step I take is to my grave. You have made me believe that I could own things that was never mine to own. 
Maybe my body is just a gift I borrow for a while to walk, to walk this earth. I see a heart is just a heart. It beats and pounder in my chest, making me love and wanting, grasping and hating. You are so strong, my unfaithful heart. I know you will fool me again and again. I know you will let me down. I know you will hurt me, as I will, my dearest ones. Now knowing you, my unfaithful heart, that you are not to be trusted, I do not hate you, because hate is only in you. I do forgive you, as I hope my dearest ones will forgive me. Even though my heart is unfaithful, my soul is not. Very beautiful. Thank you. Maybe you could leave it out so people can look at it again. Seems like a good time for a break. I, I can't follow that. Huh? <laughs>